The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. What do you do when you feel incredibly isolated? Now, one of the things we try to encourage people with regularly in churches is that we are better together. And there are times in life when we might not necessarily always feel like we are better together, but we are certainly not at our best when we are isolated and lonely, right? So let's just put that in perspective. Let's just say it again, right? So we may not always feel better together. Like just think family get-togethers, right? Like it's not always necessarily better together, but we are not at our best when we are lonely and isolated. Think uh, Discovery Channel watching lions attack a herd of water buffalo. They get one of them alone and isolated, and that leads to destruction and ruin. And this gets really personal and really hard. And so I'm just going to kind of like raise my hand and say, yeah, one of the great challenges I personally feel is that there are times when I feel incredibly alone, and there are times when I want to just escape everything. just want to push away, push back from people. And one of the things that makes that temptation uh, harder is that especially uh, as pastors, and I think some of our team can appreciate this, there are times when we feel like we've got to have it all together. We have to have all the answers. We, we have to look and live perfect. We, we've got to, you know, uh, we have to set the example and so we can't really mess up or stumble or struggle. And man, if we're going through something difficult, it's like we feel afraid that, man, am I allowed to let people see that? And so the challenge is, but as a result, if you can't do that, then you feel even more and more isolated and alone. And so what do you and I do? Because maybe you can totally relate. Like, I, I think I wrestled, I shared, I wrestled with those feelings. But then, some of you know, we went on a family uh, getaway. We were on sabbatical, which means I took some time off. So excited to be back. I love you guys. But when we were off, we were on a five-week road trip. And the one thing about being in the car with all eight of us together is you can't hide anything. I mean, there's no faking it. Like if I feel like I want to pull back and get isolated and, you know, like make it look like I've got it all together, there's enough smells in that car and there's enough whining in the car. And like, you're not getting away with faking it. I mean, if we have to go to the bathroom, I got to pull over. And so, you know, me and my four-year-old, we were driving to all of us in the car, and we gotta, we're going through the Mojave Desert. And I mean, we got to go to the bathroom. The great thing is the desert's a perfect place to go. And so, you know, the point is this. You guys are like, this is like, uh, here's what I'm going. Like, spending five weeks in the car together, you can't pretend. Like, there's no faking it. Like, you just got to go live it together. And you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be real because... You know, I have a choice. If you're hungry, somebody's going to know. And if one of them is upset with the other one, you have to work it out. Because otherwise, I'm going to get sick and tired of hearing them yelling at each other, right? Like, girls, you've got to work it out now. We're tired of this. We've been driving for four hours hearing this. Enough, right? Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's real. Like, this is real life. You've got to work through it. But, man, how many of us dads, husbands, we don't want to see? Or we don't want our kids to see us struggle. We, we don't want our wives to know we're weak. Moms, maybe you struggle with feeling like you can't let your kids know how overwhelmed you are and how close you are to losing it. 
Maybe you've got friends around you, but man, you just don't feel like you can really open up and share because you're afraid that they're going to reject you just like someone else rejected you. Maybe you carry hurt or feelings of betrayal because you've been wounded in the past, and as a result, it's hard for you to open up, and so you wall yourself in. You build walls around your life for fear of letting anyone get too close because if they get too close, they might see what you really are. And if they saw what you really are, they might betray you and hurt you like others have done before you. And so it can happen even in the church where you know politics and, and pain can cause us to wonder if what we have is real. And so people come in and they struggle. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're right now, maybe you're online because you're afraid to get close. Or, or you know, maybe what you're going through right now, you're looking at the church and you're skeptical because for you, the church is full of hypocrites or it's phony. Or you're worried that people around you think they're better than you. Or they don't care at all. So we struggle with these things. And I, I just wonder, is there a better way? And so I'm jumping in to an ancient moment. But I'm going to give you the context. There's a guy named Luke. He was a highly respected and well-educated physician who, living in a Greek culture, not near Jerusalem where the early church lived, but separated from that, this guy Luke begins to hear about and begin to listen to these Jesus followers, these early Christians. He notices the way they live and the way they live together, and he becomes curious about Jesus and curious about the church, so curious that he begins to investigate the story of Jesus. He studies and researches. He talks to people who personally knew Jesus. And as he begins to hear the story, he becomes so persuaded that Jesus is who he said he was, that this outsider to Christianity and this outsider to Judaism becomes a Jesus follower. And he writes out the story of the life and teachings of Jesus from his investigation, and his writing gets included in the Bible. Imagine this outsider that becomes an insider. I mean, his story, his book gets included in what we now call the Bible, and um, it's called the Gospel of Luke. Then he writes a second volume, and I love this volume because this is what Luke sees. He's watching the church, and he begins to write out the story of the church, and it's his second volume. It's included in the Bible. It's called the Book of Acts. The, the book or the, the history of the early church followers and the way they lived, the Acts of these early followers. And he records this moment. It's found in Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42. And so let me give you context. Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus calls people to follow him and live out that love to others. Then he says, now before you go trying to live this out, you need power. And so they, they have a prayer meeting and God's spirit shows up and they all get filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then word begins to spread and something miraculous begins to happen. And this is the way that chapter ends. They, these early Jesus followers who gathered as a church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the, the, the apostles were the leaders of the early church, and they're teaching people about Jesus, and to the fellowship, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at, many, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I've read this passage so many times. And as I read it, I crave it. If I was Luke, I could understand why he wanted to be part of it. I could understand why when he saw the way they met and the way they lived, he was like, I want in. I'm an outsider, but I want to be an insider. I want to be part of what they have. And as I read this, I, I, don't, I don't read just about casual church. I read about this radical, even risky, even dangerous way of coming together and doing life together called the church. And so the struggle I have is, have we lost something? thing. 2,000 years later is what we experience as the church. Is it so radically different? Meaning, have we, have we traded community for criticisms? Have we traded love for labeling? Have we traded uh, what it means to have communion together for consumerism? Are we content with just gathering one time a week and for what it looked like for them to just do and share life together intimately and radically. And it was risky and dangerous, but there was something contagious about it. And so my challenge to you, my takeaway, meaning this is what I feel every time I read this. How does it, how does it jump off the pages of history and jump off the pages of Luke's writing into my life and affect me and infect me is this. We're, we must be committed to community. Your challenge, your takeaway, the principle that you can apply straight from what I've read is that you and I must commit to community. See, the church is not something you do. It's something you are, right? Think about the word family. You don't do family. You are a family. You don't go to family like you're going home, you don't go to family. Like that sounds, doesn't make any sense. You don't go to church. No, what, we, what do we do? We are the church and we're called to be the church. But in order for that to happen, we have to commit to community. But there is a problem. The reason why everything I started out sharing, why we struggle with each other, why we get so isolated, why when I can ride in the car together with eight, all eight of us for five weeks and sometimes we're ready to kill each other is because there's a brokenness inside of every one of us that separates us from each other, that drives a wedge into relationship, and that's what biblical authors in Jesus referred to as sin. It's even hard to say because it's such a dark diagnosis. Sin, it's not something in your mind. It's not something in your marriage. It's not something in your emotions. It's not something that you, that, you know, it's just a problem at work. Sin is a spiritual force that every one of us were born with. It's like being born with a corruption inside. Well, it is a corruption. Born with a corruption inside of you that begins to eat you alive from the inside out. But it doesn't just destroy you. It destroys relationships. And the ultimate reason why it destroys you and relationships with others is because sin separated us from relationship with God. See, the ultimate 
or the ultimate problem with sin is that the moment we are born in sin, we are separated from God in judgment, right? Like there's this separation, there's this gap. And because we're separated from God, we go through life ruined, ruining, and ultimately headed toward eternal ruin. That's the bad news, okay? Don't worry, there's good news coming out. If you, I know you're joining me. You're at one of our campuses and you can't see everyone here. I can see them and I can see you. Um, and you're all like, this is really dark. This is hard. Yeah, but there's good news. And the good news is that God was not willing to leave us in our sin, in our shame, in our guilt, separated from him and each other because of this sin. And so God stepped into our mess. In fact, if you want to know the, what happened just before that passage I read, where it says they devoted themselves to each other, they ate together, they worshiped together, they prayed together, and the church grew. Well, here's what happened just before that. The apostle Peter was preaching to a crowd of people who did not believe in Jesus. And he says this to them. Acts chapter two, verse 36. See, I jumped a little bit backward. He goes like this. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 300 were added to the number that day. See, what preceded this commitment to community was a call to Christ. Let me explain. God saw that you and I were separated far from him. And as a result, that metastasized and it caused a separation in homes and marriages and between parents and children, between friends and neighbors in the workplace. And so here's what God did. God stepped into our world, but please follow me. I want to make sure you don't miss this. When God stepped into our world, it was radical. It was a dangerous step. Do you realize that God lives in unity and community with himself? Now, those of you who haven't studied this, maybe you could be like, sounds weird. Like, I don't live in unity and community with myself, although there are times when I disagree with myself and I feel like my mind is running a mile a minute. God is, there's one God who exists in three persons. I know, you can shake your head. You can go, this doesn't make sense. You can go... My mind is having a hard time with this one. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are one, but there's three of them that exist together in perfect unity and perfect community. They don't need anyone to get along. They don't need anyone else to have friends. When they show up, they're a party. God has himself. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfect unity and perfect community. But check this out. In order for Jesus to come rescue us from the separation between us and him, he had to pull away from the Trinity. He actually had to come out of heaven. Now, it doesn't mean he was separated from God, but he actually had to, with, he had to come to us stepping away from the intimacy of the Trinity in heaven to come near us. For what purpose? Because we were separated from him. And so he chased us down. He came after us because we were broken in relationship. And so what Jesus does is he takes the sin that separated from us, from us from him. He took our shame, our guilt, our pain. He put it on himself so that when he died, he took the eternal ruin that we deserve because of our sin on himself. So that when he died, he died once for all. And here's, this, here's a radical thing that we often miss when we think about Jesus dying. In that moment when Jesus died, for the first time in all of eternity, God was not unified. God was not in perfect community. 
God the Father, God the Spirit were separated from God the Son. Jesus was separated and relationship was broken because he had to absorb the wrath and the payment and the punishment for our sin. So Jesus became isolated and separated from perfect community with God the Father and God the Spirit for us so that when Jesus died, he paid for our, the penalty for our sins. Jesus didn't stay dead. When he rose from the dead, the restoration of community and unity in God and restoration between unity and community between God and man. So that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is forgiven of their sins and given new life, right? Because Jesus not only died, he rose from the dead. And when he rose, he gives, he, he gives us victory over sin, victory over death, and victory over eternal judgment. Now check this out. When you believe in Jesus by faith, you're not just forgiven and given new life. God's spirit enters into your spirit where you begin to live a new kind of life. And as you begin to live this new kind of life with God's spirit in your spirit, you begin to share that with others. First, you and I are restored to relationship with God. Through God the Son, Jesus, you are invited in a perfect relationship with the whole Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And now we have this beautiful relationship with God, but what we have with God is meant to be shared with each other, right? So if we are forgiven by God, we're meant to forgive others. Whatever fills, spills. So the love we have with God is meant to be shared in love with others. The community we have with God is meant to be shared with others. And so how does this work? How do we commit to community. And so I want to break this into a couple pieces here and hopefully give you some real practical tools as you apply this to your life. Well, let's jump in. Here we go. Uh, I want to bring you back to the passage I already read, and then I'm going to take this apart briefly for you, unpack it, and give you some practical application. The first, first thing I want you to notice is this, and, and I'm going to try to emphasize the words as I'm reading it. They devoted, did you catch the emphasis there? <laughs> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, fellowship, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. So this is a run-on sentence. It's pretty long. Like, those of you who are English teachers, you're like, ah! Oh! But here we go, right? They devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. People were amazed by the fact that they were, there was this devotion to these things. And as they devoted themselves to each of these things, signs, wonders, and miracles began to happen among them. So what's the point here? Being the church is a commitment. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not like you go to like a neighborhood party. When, you, when, you, when there's a neighborhood party, I don't know, if, hopefully you have neighborhood parties, maybe. Um, you know, some of the neighborhood's like, hey, let's all get together and hang out, right? And somebody agrees to bring the chips, somebody brings some hot dogs, whatever, you know, and then you're, you're gluten-free, so you have to bring your own food. And, uh, and, and some of you, you have, you have other food issues, and so you got to bring yours. But, you know, so you show up with like your own little picnic basket with your kids, and you're like, yeah, we can't eat anything. And, but, you know, the point is you come together, and you can take it or leave it. You don't have to come. If you don't come, no, it's not like they're going to egg your house. Just whoever wants to come, bring what you want, hang out if you want, and leave when you want, right? That's not at all what we just read, is it? No, no, no. There was this commitment that we are going to come together, we are going to eat together, we're going to pray together, we're going to learn together, we're going to serve together, we're going to give together, we're going to, what, what's not in this moment, because that happens next, is they suffer together, they die together. Between the suffering and the dying, they're persecuted, they're beaten together. 
In essence, you could say that there is this intimacy of suffering together, of just simply sharing life together, but it required a commitment. There's a few things in life that require a commitment because it's not easy. No, it requires, uh, well, it requires you to sign on the dotted line, right? Like when Laura and I got married, we had to get a, a marriage, you have to get like a marriage license. You have to actually apply for it because they know that this is going to be hard. And then when you have a marriage ceremony, you actually make a vow for richer, for poorer. And all of us said, yeah, for richer. <laughs> and then when the poor came, we were like, oh, that's what they meant. In sickness and in health, we all want health until one of you's laying in the ER and you're afraid that this might be the last breath. And suddenly that whole in sickness thing comes flashing to your mind till death parts us. And that's what it means to commit to each other. When there's a family, you make a commitment to each other. There's a sense of we belong together because we are committed to each other no matter what. Even if you're in the car and you're smelling up the car, we're still committed to you, even though we really want to leave you at the next rest, at the next rest stop. Right? Because we're committed as a family. And so what do you see in this passage is this deep sense of commitment because in order to be the church, it's going to take commitment. Because somebody's going to hurt you. Somebody's going to offend you. I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. There's going to be decisions that are made that you're not going to like or you're not going to understand. Maybe we're going to, maybe we're going to uh, resource money a certain way that you disagree with or you don't even understand. And you're like, I don't like that. And that's why it takes commitment together. There's, there's people near you that, you know, maybe they cut you off on the way in. I did that. I've done that before. I was running late and I've come, I've cut somebody off and then they pulled in behind me to the life house and I was so embarrassed. I, I, I wanted to hide. It was probably you. And I'm sorry. And, and because that, that's why it takes a commitment because you know, you could pull in and then be like, who's the pastor? What a punk. What a jerk. I'm not coming here anymore. Well, hey, I admit, I'm crazy, right? But you see what I'm saying? Like, that's why it takes commitment. Because when you leave, when you, when you don't put your clothes, your dirty clothes in the, in the pantry or in the little basket thing, what is that thing? The little clothing bin? You know, you don't put your clothes in there. Or you put the toilet paper on backwards. Or you don't know how to use the toothpaste thing wrong. This is why marriage and family takes a commitment. And man, there's a lot of toilet paper and toothpaste issues within the church. Because it takes commitment. And we got to be willing to commit to each other. Sickness and in health. Richer and poor. In the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because that's what it means to be the church. And that thing's, it's amazing when we begin to live and act like that. And so my first challenge to you is, are you willing to devote yourselves? Now, it's not just a blanket commitment. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's a commitment to being the church. To, to learning together, to the apostles' teaching. Let's, let's together grow in the gospel that God loves us. Jesus died for us and he rose again to give us victory. Let's commit, devote ourselves to each other that we're gonna pray together, eat together, share life together, serve together, give together, love together, and reach a community together. Now let's keep going because there's more to unpack. What's the next thing we read? So we just keep going right through this verse. All the believers were together together and had everything in common. This is huge. 
Because this isn't just talking everything in common. It's not just referring to their financial resources and their homes. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And so there was this uh, radical like gathering and then scattering. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Here's the takeaway. When you, when you commit to being the church, then something miraculous begins to happen. Being the church is authentic in community. Commitment creates an authenticity in community, right? If you're not committed to me, I can't be vulnerable with you. If you're not going to stick with me through thick and thin, I can't just open up my heart and life to you. But if I know we're in this together and I know we're committed and we're committed to the same thing, right? So if you pause and you say, well, what are we committed to? It is a common unity of faith in Jesus Christ. Let me be very clear. Do not miss this. What brings us together in authentic community is not that we all look the same. The church should be one of the most radically diverse environments in all of the earth. Because what unifies us is not our socioeconomic status. It's not our ethnicity. We're, we're not worried about uh, your, um, you know, what nation you're from. We're not worried about your background. We're uni- if you believe in Jesus Christ, we're unified. We have a common unity in the faith of Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's the, that's the only bar, right? And what that means is this. That's what makes up the church, capital C. And a local church is a local group of people coming together because they have a common unity in Jesus Christ. And when we share that in common, then we begin to have an authentic community. Well, authentic community, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean that the church is a product or a commodity. Right? A product is something you can buy and sell, something you can have and hold, something you can rate and evaluate. Right? So many of us, so often when we go into a church, we do something like this. We come home. Hey, how was church? Oh, well, you know, Patrick, he was off today. I'd rate him at a four. But man, the worship was off the charts. It was awesome. And I'll give that a nine. But they were out of Cheez-Its in the lobby. Even though everyone, all the first impressions was amazing. But man, they ran out of Cheez-Its. So I'm giving the lobby a five. And there was nobody there parking my car. You know, they weren't there to direct me in the car. And so I got a little lost. I had to park further back in the parking lot. And so I'm going to rate the overall parking experience, you know, a four as well. So yeah. Give the whole thing a five. (laughs) What? No. It's not a commodity. It's not a product. It's family. It's community. When you're authentic community, what that means is we're going to share life together, right? We commit to doing life together. We commit to serving one another, to loving one another, which means we have to be willing to repent. We have to be willing to forgive. We have to be willing to give. That means we have to be willing to open our homes. We have to be willing to open our homes and our lives even when they're not spotless. Did you catch that? Some of you, you want to make sure before you invite anyone in your home, it's got to be spotless. And since it's not going to be spotless, you just don't invite people into your home because you're afraid if they see a mess, they're not going to like what they see and they'll judge you for it and they'll break commitment. And you won't open your life because you're afraid 
If they see it's not spotless, even worse will happen. So we got to be willing to open our homes and our lives even when they're not spotless because they never will be. But we're going to commit to authentic communion. We're going to be vulnerable. We're going to be sincere. We're going to love one another in the good times and the bad times, right? We're going to walk together and share life together. That's the authentic community. And here's what begins to happen. As we live in authentic community, people begin to notice. Let me jump back into the passage as it wraps, as this passage wraps up. Here's what happened, right? They did all that, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Everyone around noticed. People like Luke noticed. Highly educated physician who was well-respected noticed, and he, it, it found favor with him. He liked what he saw. It was contagious. I want what you have. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, people being rescued from isolation, the isolation that comes from sin, the isolation that comes from suffering, the isolation that comes from hurt and betrayal. They were rescued as they were being saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what I I want you to know. I fundamentally believe that when you read this passage, a key takeaway is being the church is the hope of the world. It's the one thing we have that no one else has. Being the church is the hope of the world because we live the good news of God's love. We carry the hope of the world. We show the hope of the world and we share the hope of the world. We are the only organization, organism, community that actually offers hope. Oh, other organizations, they can deliver blood in a crisis. They can deliver clothes or food or other resources. They can provide counseling and mental health resources. We are the only ones in the whole world for all the, all the history that can offer hope. We, when we're being the church, are the hope of the world, which means we are called to share and show God's love with people who are far away from him, which means so much of what we do is meant to be shown and offered to people that are far away from God. We are an open-doored community. Our homes are open doors. Our lives are open doors. Why? Because we are about being a church that unchurched people love to attend, that they love to be part of. Your life group is meant to be a place that unchurched people want to be part of it. Our outreaches are designed that unchurched people want to come in so that like that passage we just read, they would be like, every day the church grew as God added to their number those that were being rescued from sin and isolation that comes from sin. You have a contagious hope. You have a contagious faith. And if you don't, welcome right now. God's arms are open wide to you through faith in Jesus Christ who was willing to separate himself from the Trinity by dying on the cross and suffering for your sins. And he says, welcome home. You're invited into the family of God. You don't have to be an outsider anymore. You're an insider today. And so Jesus extends to you an invitation into salvation through faith in him and into the family of God, the community of believers. If you believe in Jesus, are you living it? Are you committed to community? If, if your decision right now is I need to make a commitment to Jesus Christ and you take that first step. But boy, so many of you, you believe in Jesus. It's time for you to commit to community. Not just when it's easy, not just in health and not just in riches, in sickness, in suffering, in poorer. That's what it means to be committed in community, which offers the hope of the world. So here's what I want you to do. We believe as a church that circles are better than rows. 
which means it's better to be in a life group than it is just to gather on the weekends, right? You're in rows if you're at one of our campuses. Even though I know some of you, you think you have the best campus. I know Leidersburg Cinema, you guys think you have the best because you have those amazing seats. No offense to those of us sitting in pews. And, uh, you know, Chambersburg, they think they're awesome because they're the youngest. They're like the little brother, you know. You guys are awesome because you're young and you're new and you're vibrant. But, you know, every one of us, here's the deal, right? It doesn't matter what row you're sitting in. It's better to also get into a group. And so my challenge is this. What one commitment do you need to make today? Do you need to make a commitment to Christ? Do you need to make a commitment to community? Would you pause for just a moment and pray? Let God's Spirit speak to your spirit right now and invite you to take that one step of faith in commitment. Would you do that? Pause. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.